Let us pray together. Father, we do ask that You would speak with grace and power into our lives, into our hearts through this story about Your Son, about His love, about His desire to heal us, about His desire to make us whole. Father, we pray that You would speak to us through this story, that we might be encouraged and strengthened in the faith, that we might live out the calling You've given to each one of us. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We are taking a break from James, and we're looking this morning at one of my absolute favorite stories in the Gospels. But I want to provide some context for this story so we can really understand it. You know, it's interesting if you read through the Gospels, many times Jesus treats the family as an enemy, it seems. He treats the family as a rival to his kingdom. And so, for example, in Luke 14, Jesus says, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brother and sister, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. In Matthew 10, he said he did not come to bring peace, but a sword to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And he says a person's enemies will be those of his own household. What kind of teaching is that about the family? A man's enemies will be those of his own household. It seems that Jesus is uh, denying the importance of the family or, or taking the family down a few rungs in our understanding of its importance. Jesus is demanding total allegiance. Our highest loyalty must be to Him. And not even family can get in the way. Jesus Himself experienced rejection and abandonment uh, from his family. In Mark chapter 3, very interesting passage. Jesus has been teaching and his mother and brothers come to get him. Apparently they think Jesus has gone off the reservation. They think Jesus has gone crazy. But when Jesus hears of his family members coming for him, what does he do? He looks to those who are gathered around him and he says, who are my mother and my brothers? He says, here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does the will of God, he is my brother. What is Jesus doing? He is clearly redefining the family. He's recreating the family. He's forming a new family. A family defined by faith in Himself and by obedience to God's will. Again, Jesus made it clear again and again. Our highest loyalty can't be to our natural family. Our highest loyalty, our primary loyalty must be to Him and to our fellow believers. What we might call the family of faith. Our highest loyalty must be to Christ and His kingdom and His church. And you know, there are times when Christians have had to make this choice. There are times when Christians have had to leave their natural families behind out of faithfulness to Jesus. The Gospel can tear a family apart. If some members of the family believe the Gospel and others don't, that's what you have. A torn family. A divided family family. Sometimes Christians have to forsake their natural family ties in favor of kingdom ties. In favor of the kingdom of Christ. Church history is filled with stories of new converts to the faith who are then rejected and mocked and persecuted by their non-Christian family members and they've got to choose. They've got to choose Jesus over family. Water is thicker than blood. The baptismal family is greater than the natural family. Even when Jesus was young, it was clear that 
Uh, he was aware of his calling to a higher family than the natural family. When he was 12 years old, his family went to Jerusalem for the Feast of Passover. And when his parents left uh, with the rest of the entourage to go back home, Jesus stayed behind. He had business to do, it seems, in Jerusalem. And uh, eventually, of course, his mom and dad, his mom and his earthly dad, realized that Jesus is missing, as they do what any parent does when you can't find your child. They panic. I mean, imagine having the Son of God entrusting to you, entrusted to you, and then losing him. <laughs> I mean, that's a, that's a scary thing. I can only imagine the conversation between Mary and Joseph on the way back to Jerusalem to look for him. But when they finally find their 12-year-old son, what is he doing? He is in the temple, and he says, why were you looking for me? Do you not know I must be in my father's house? Now, we could say, you know, when Jesus speaks of his father's house, certainly Jesus honored his earthly father, Joseph. Uh, but he's indicating there that he's got a, a, a greater fatherhood that he serves, a greater mission that he serves. His highest loyalty is to his heavenly father. Uh, and we might say, well, Jesus was the eternal son of God. So, of course, that's true for him. But it's true for us, too. Because while, yes, we do seek to honor our earthly fathers, we're commanded to do that. Uh, we are children now who have been born from above, born again. And we have been adopted into the family of a heavenly father. And he is our ultimate father, our truest father. So reading the Gospels, reading these kinds of passages in the Gospels, you might get the idea that Jesus is just a homewrecker. That he cares very little for marriage and family life. That because family life is subordinated to the kingdom, that family doesn't matter much. But that would not be true. In fact, we see another strand of teaching in the Gospels, another kind of story in the Gospels where Jesus affirms family life and even brings family life into His kingdom. His kingdom can not only rip families apart, His kingdom can also mend families and make them whole. He came not just to redeem individuals. He came to restore creation, to heal and transform creational structures. His grace, we could say, restores nature. And that includes the natural family. And so we find in the Gospels, Jesus having a deep concern for marriage. And not just because it's a symbol of the Gospel itself, but marriage itself as an earthly, time-bound institution. Jesus has uh, a great deal of concern for it. It's true. Jesus said he came as the bridegroom for the bride. He came to slay the dragon and rescue the damsel in distress. The, the church is Israel, his people. Christ is the husband. And we, the church, are his bridegroom. And all of history, we're told, in the New Testament, is going to end with this cosmic wedding feast. The gospel is a love story. It's a wedding story. But Jesus does much more than just affirm marriage as a symbol or type. That may be the ultimate meaning of marriage, is to point us to this greater marriage between Christ and His church. But Jesus is very much concerned with earthly marriage, with what we might call the natural family. He's pro-family. He's for the family. And Jesus clearly affirms marriage itself as the foundation of the natural family. In Mark chapter 10, Jesus is questioned about divorce. Should he go along with the lax divorce laws that were uh, common in the day? And there in Mark chapter 10, as he's questioned about divorce, 
Jesus affirms the definition of marriage found back in Genesis. One man, one woman, one life. That's the definition of marriage. Jesus defines marriage as a man and a woman becoming one flesh for life. This is to be a permanent bond. And while he does acknowledge grounds for divorce in certain tragic situations, it's clear he affirms the goodness of the marriage covenant, the sanctity of marriage as an institution. We see this as well in John chapter 2. Jesus there sanctifies marriage by attending a wedding in Cana of Galilee. And there he performs his first miracle, the first of his signs in John's gospel. They're having a wedding celebration. The wine supply starts to run low. And so he commands that six water pots for purification be brought out and he transforms the water into wine. And not just any wine, but the best wine. And why does he do this? Well, it's so the celebration can continue. He affirms the goodness of marriage as an institution ordained by God at creation. Marriage is worth celebrating. Jesus celebrated marriage. Jesus not only affirms the relationship between husband and wife, he affirms the relationship with parents and children as well. He not only affirms that husband-wife relationship, he affirms the parent-child relationship as well. So Luke 18, Jesus takes covenant children into his arms, these children who have been brought to him by believing parents, and he blesses them. And when the disciples try to shoo them away, the disciples object because they don't think children are worthy of Jesus' time and attention in this way. Jesus insists. He says, let the children come and do not forbid them, for of such is the kingdom of God. In another place, he uses covenant children as models of membership in his kingdom. He says, unless you turn and become like this little child, you will by no means enter the kingdom. And he goes on, he says, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, and whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble, it would be better for him to have a millstone tied around his neck and be drowned in the sea. Jesus affirms children. He's got the highest view of children. Not that he, does, not that he doesn't think they're sinners, of course. He uh, certainly knows children are sinners and, and, and affirms that as well. But the, but the point is, his love, his grace, his covenant, his promises extend to the children of his people. And so how do we see Jesus interacting with children? He loves them. He blesses them. He protects them. He declared covenant children, the children of his people, to be believers, to be kingdom members, even models of how to enter the kingdom in some way. But there's more. Because God made us male and female, because we have moms and dads and sons and daughters, there are four different kinds of parent-child relations to consider. There is the father-son relationship, the father-daughter relationship, the mother-son relationship, the mother-daughter relationship. And each of these relationships is unique. The bond of love in each of these relationships is unique. Because men and women are different, because moms and dads are different, because boys and girls are different, each one of these relationships is special. Each one of these relationships has something about it that is special. And what's interesting is that Jesus honors 
each of these four relationships in his healing ministry in the gospel. Let's, let's unpack this a little bit. Jesus blesses and sanctifies each one of these relationships. Why is that? Well, I think it's acknowledging that each one of these relationships has something that is unique about it. Moms and dads play different roles in the lives of their sons and daughters. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, Paul says, We were among you like a mother nurturing her own children. And then a few verses later, Paul says, we exhorted you like a father with his children, encouraging and charging you to walk in a manner worthy of God. Paul is operating with certain archetypes for what motherhood is and what fatherhood is. And of course, yes, there's all kinds of overlap between motherhood and fatherhood. But it is still true. Moms love kids in one way. Dads love kids in another way. And kids recognize these differences from their earliest days. From the earliest age, even in the womb, they can distinguish the deep, commanding voice of a father from the softer, gentler voice of a mother. They can distinguish the physical stature of dad from mom. How a child relates to the body of its mom and the body of its dad is distinct from the very beginning. That's obvious. Uh, how mom and dad interact with uh, the child is different with Dads, dads are much more likely to roughhouse, to, to play rough with the kids, right? I mean, I've never seen a mom toss a child up into the air and catch it. See, dads do that with their little kids all the time. Never seen a mom do it. Moms and dads are different. Again, as Paul puts it, moms are best at nurturing. Dads are best at exhorting. Moms tend to be comforters. Dads tend to be challengers. That's how this works. Moms are soft and comforting. Dads are firm and to be fear. And of course, these differences between moms and dads are rooted in the much broader differences between men and women in general. Throughout Scripture, we see men have a special calling to initiate and lead. Uh, women have a special call to respond and glorify. Men initiate, women complete. Men build, women beautify. That's how we're designed as men and women. And so this, is, this plays itself out in how fathers and mothers live, but it also plays itself out in how you raise a son versus how you raise a daughter. When you have a son, you are raising a builder and a leader, and you need to do certain things with him that will prepare him for that kind of vocation. When you are raising a daughter, you are raising a nurturer and a beautifier, and you ought to do certain things that will encourage her and shape her in that vocation. Now look at how these relationships are honored in the Gospel. These four different relationships. Mother-son, mother-daughter, father-son, father-daughter. We see a mother's love for her daughter in Matthew chapter 15. When the Syrophoenician mother brings Jesus to cast a demon out from her daughter. So you have a mother who loves her daughter and brings her daughter to Jesus. And because of this mother's faith, Jesus drives the demon out of her daughter. In Luke 7, we see a mother bring her dead son to Jesus. Actually, it seems like the funeral procession is just going by as Jesus comes along. And this son is described as the only son of his mother who was a widow. And Jesus sees her weeping and he has compassion on her. And so he approaches the dead body of her son and says, young man, I command you to arise. And of course, the young man 
rises from the dead, and then Jesus gives the boy back to his mother. And no doubt her broken mother heart was healed. You see that, that, that mother-son relationship on it there. Matthew chapter 17, we see the father-son relationship. Uh, dad brings his boy to Jesus. This boy has been made mute by a demon. Uh, and this demon is causing convulsions. The, the boy is just out of control. And the, and the disciples have tried to perform the exorcism, but they failed. And Jesus comes to the rescue. He honors this father-son relationship, driving out the demon, restoring this son to his father. And then here in Luke 8, we have the father-daughter relationship. Jairus is described as the ruler of a synagogue. He's a pastor, basically. So this story is about a pastor's kid, okay? a pastor's daughter. And uh, Jairus has come to Jesus. And he begs Jesus to go to his home where his 12-year-old daughter is near death. And before Jesus can go, uh, word comes that it is too late that this little child, this daughter, this 12-year-old girl has died. But of course, we know with Jesus, death is never the last word. Jesus canceled every funeral he ever attended. He celebrated weddings and he canceled funerals. How great is that? And that's what we see here. He tells the father, do not be afraid. Only believe and she will be made well. And he comes to the house. And he takes his inner circle of disciples with him, Peter, James, and John. They're the same three who in the next chapter will go up with him on the Mount of Transfiguration. Uh, and that's because I think this story and that story are both previews of how his ministry will culminate. And he doesn't want everybody to see this just yet. Only this inner circle. His ministry is going to culminate with resurrection and glory. So they get to see that ahead of time. And so they go into the house and the father... And mother are there, and the people are gathered to weep and mourn over the loss of this little girl, this tragedy. And Jesus tells the mourners, do not weep, for she is not dead, but she is sleeping. And the people who are gathered to mourn ridicule him. They mock him. They think he must be out of his mind. He must be crazy. They know she's dead, and they know dead people stay dead. If there's anything that's true about dead people, it's that they stay dead. So what is this crazy man talking about? But he sends them out, and he goes to the girl, and he takes her by the hand, and he says, little girl, arise. And her spirit returned, we're told, and she arose immediately, and he commanded that she be given something to eat, which I am sure the parents were glad to do. Her parents were astonished by this, we are told. Now, I want you to notice several things about this story. Several things here to notice. The father saves his daughter by going to Jesus. The father blesses his daughter by seeking Jesus on her behalf. The father gains blessing for his daughter by seeking out Jesus for her sake. It's really interesting to me. You know, we got all these accounts of Jesus blessing children in the Gospels. Every time Jesus ministers to children in the Gospels, at least one parent is present. It's always in the context of some kind of connection with the parent. At least one parent. This story in particular is about a dad and a daughter. So let me say a few things about that, about that uh, relationship. Uh, I remember coming across an article uh, about Billy Graham. 
uh, after he passed away a few years ago. And it was entitled, Little Girls Need Their Daddy. And I think there are a lot of things to appreciate about Billy Graham's ministry. I have no doubt that his ministry did all kinds of good in the world and in the church. And I, he was... He was uh, he, he broke through the, 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 the racial barrier uh, very early before anybody else was doing that. There are all kinds of things to appreciate about Billy Graham's ministry. But it was interesting reading this article. It looked in particular at his home life, and it included comments, quotes from uh, his daughters, Gigi and Ruth. And these are some of the things that they said. Ruth said, He parented me from a distance. He loved us, but he just wasn't around. Ruth said, I have a lot of insecurities and lack of self-confidence, perhaps because little girls need their daddy. They say your view of God is shaped by your father. I guess I saw God that way, that he loved me, but he was busy with more important things. Gigi said, a lot of my insecurities come from the fact that he just wasn't there. Now, those words might hit a nerve. I mean, a few dads, especially dads with daughters, uh, those words might uh, hit an earth. Uh, those words might uh, sting a little bit to hear these grown women reflect back on uh, their childhood and their relationship with their father in this way. And I would guess that all of us as dads would love to have more time with all of our kids. And especially here you see uh, daughters who were neglected by their father. And it is true. Daughters need their daddies. And we dads might wish we could do more. I'm going to tell you, do more. If you think you should, do more. I think the father in this story, I mean, of course we don't know a whole lot about Jairus, but the father in this story is presented to us as a model of fatherhood. He is everything a father is supposed to be in this story. Uh, he is there for his daughter. He's obviously present in her life. He's engaged with her. He's active in her life. He's not passive. He knows fathers are called to protect and provide, and that's what this father is seeking to do. And when he can't do the protecting and providing himself, he seeks out someone who can. That someone who can, of course, being Jesus. And here I think we see really the most important thing a father can do. The most important thing a father can do is go to Jesus for his children and then bring Jesus to his children. And that's what this father does. That's what this dad does for his daughter. It's very interesting. I'm going to make a claim here and then back it up. A father's spirituality sets the trajectory for the spiritual lives of his children. A father set, a father's spirituality sets the trajectory for the spiritual lives of his children in a way that nobody else, including the mother, does. Scripture, but I think you, you can point to all different kinds of, 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 of examples of this. Studies of this have shown us again and again that fathers are the most decisive influence on their children in this way. They are the most decisive influence on the future spiritual faithfulness of their children. For better or for worse, fathers shape their children's future spiritual lives. As the father goes, so the household goes, and so go his children. Stats that bear this out. Everything that we look at in our culture that we see as a great crisis, virtually all of those crises 
are really just symptoms of a deeper underlying problem of fatherlessness. They are symptomatic of this problem of fatherlessness. So you start to look at all these different social ills we face. What's the common link between virtually all of them? It is fatherlessness. So children from fatherless homes account for the vast majority of youth suicides. 70% of those in juvenile delinquency come from fatherless homes. 71% of all high school dropouts. 71% of pregnant teenagers. 75% of all adolescents in chemical abuse centers come from fatherless homes. 85% of all youth who are in prison come from fatherless homes. And it's actually even higher for the females. 90% of all homeless and runaway teenagers are from fatherless homes. A few years ago, there was an article by Robbie Lowe uh, in Touchstone Magazine that uh, talked about this. Lowe uh, summed up the findings of a study that evaluated the impact of a father's church attendance on his kids' attendance at church once they became adults. And this is what he says. If a father does not go to church, no matter how faithful his wife's devotions are, only one child in 50 will become a regular worshiper. If a father does go regularly, regardless of the practice of the mother, three-fourths of the children will remain churchgoers in adulthood. So mom goes, dad does not. Only 2% of those kids stick with church. Dad goes, doesn't matter what mom does, 75% remain in church. Lowe says these results are shocking, but they should not be surprising. They are about as politically incorrect as it is possible to be, but they simply confirm what psychologists, criminologists, educationalists, and traditional Christians know you cannot buck the biology of the created order. It says a mother's role will always remain primary in terms of intimacy, care, and nurture. No father can replace that relationship. It is unique. But it is equally true that when a child begins to move into that period of differentiation from the home and engage with the world out there, both sons and daughters look increasingly to the father as a role model. In short, mother's choices have dramatically less effect upon children than their father's. And so, Lowe asks, what does this mean for the church? What does it mean for the church if this is the case? Well, he points out, this means that when faithful fatherhood is in decline, the church's mission is undercut. When faithful fatherhood is in decline, it works against the church's mission. And further, he points out, if the church wants to keep children, the next generation, it must keep the men. And so Lowe goes on to say, this shows us the importance of fatherly, masculine leadership within the church. He says you cannot feminize the church and keep the men, and you cannot keep the children if you do not keep the men. He says it's simple, no father, no family, no faith. Winning and keeping men is essential to the community of faith and vital to the future salvation of our children. That's his conclusion, and I think he's right. The absence of a father or the presence of a bad father, an abusive father, affects sons and daughters. It affects sons and daughters differently when sons grow up with, with father issues, girls who grow up with father issues. They're affected in different ways, but both are affected. And a bad father has a disastrous consequence. And of course, a good father has a very beneficial effect. 
A culture that despises fatherhood, that seeks to smash the patriarchy, as it were, is destroying itself. But what do we find in Luke chapter 8? In Luke chapter 8, we find a true patriarch. A patriarch who is humble, who is sacrificial, who seeks to use his authority to bless those under his care. Jairus is an honorable father. He wants his children to flourish. And he knows for his children to flourish, he has to bring Jesus and his children together. And so what does he do? He seeks Jesus on behalf of his daughter. How can you seek Jesus on behalf of your daughter? On behalf of your children? Well, certainly by praying for them. That's one way to seek Jesus on their behalf. That's what Jairus is doing here. In effect, he's seeking Jesus for her, asking for blessing from Jesus on her behalf. Do that with your children. Intercede for your children. Get blessing from Jesus for your children. But there's more. He not only goes to Jesus for his child, he also brings Jesus to his child. He brings Jesus to his daughter. Dads, the best way you can do that, I think, is by bringing your kids to church. The best way you can bring Jesus to your kids is by bringing your kids to where Jesus promises to be present wherever two or three are gathered in His name. And He promises to bless and to be at work. Bringing your kids to church is a huge part of this. But it also means teaching your children Christ's Word continually. In the way Deuteronomy 6 commands, when you rise up and when you lie down, as you walk along the way and as you sit in your house, See, Jairus brings Jesus into his house. Dad, you need to bring Jesus into your house. You need to teach your children continually. And yes, this means times of regular family worship. But it means more than that. It means simply saturating the lives of your children with the presence of Jesus and His Word. And I can tell you the presence of Jesus and His Word is so easily choked out by all kinds of other things. We stream into our homes constantly. There's a rival to Jesus in your home. What are you doing about it? Now, Jairus can certainly teach us a lot about fatherhood here. I do think he's a model father. But I don't think the main point of this story is to teach us about fatherhood. I don't think the main point of the story is to teach us about fathers and daughters or fatherhood in general, as important as those things are, as important as fathers are. We fathers cannot do the most important thing our children need. Jesus has to do what we cannot do for our children. And you see that in the way this story is told. Isn't it interesting that this story of Jairus uh, going to Jesus and then Jesus raising Jairus' daughter, that it's sort of wrapped around another story. It's meshed with another story of Jesus healing a woman with a flow of blood. And the way these two stories are intertwined, the story of Jairus starting and getting interrupted by this story of this other woman, and then returning to that story of Jairus and his daughter, it shows us very clearly that these two stories are given to interpret one another. We're to use these two stories to interpret one another. So note the similarities and differences between these two stories. Both have to do with women, and both have to do with the number 12. One is 12 years old, the other's had a flow of blood for 12 years. Both stories have to do with death. One has died, the other is dying. One is healed by her father's faith, the other by her own faith. But faith is key in both stories. Both are unclean. Both of these women are unclean according to the Old Testament law. 
Uh, death made you unclean. A flow of blood made a woman unclean. And that uncleanness would spread by touch according to the Old Testament law. But the stories are explicit. Jesus touches each one of these women and instead of their uncleanness latching on to Him, what happens? His cleanness flows out to them. His life and His power spreads to them. And it cleanses them and heals them and restores each of them. These stories show us what the law could not do because it was weakened by the flesh. Jesus, the Son of God, has done it. And this really brings us back to where we started with the new family, the ultimate family Jesus is forming. Yes, these are real women with real needs met by Jesus. But these women are also symbols and types. These women represent the people of God. And so these twin stories show us the Gospel. How do we know that? Well, again, it's just the archetypes we find again and again in Scripture. The people of God are often referred to as God's daughter. For example, as daughter Zion in the Hebrew Scriptures again and again. The people of God, God calls His people His own daughter. And here we have a daughter, the 12-year-old girl. But isn't it interesting, this other woman who comes to Jesus with a flow of blood, Jesus calls her daughter as well. These two women represent daughter's honor. But this older daughter, I think at least you can also say, is a symbol of the bride. The people of God are His bride. And this isolated woman, this unclean woman who's been cast out of the community because of her uncleanness, she's in need of a husband. She's in need of a protector and provider. And symbolically, that's exactly what Jesus is to her. Ephesians 5 talks about husbands Washing their wives in the water of the Word. Well, that's what Jesus does here. He washes her by His own Word and makes her clean. Jesus will be her true husband. Jesus has come to rescue us, to make us His own, to make us one with Himself so He can give us all that is His. He wants to be one with us forever. And all we have to do is trust Him Trust in the way Jairus trusts Him. Trust in the way this woman trusts Him. And then we will know Jesus' peace. And then your faith will make you whole. Power flows out from Jesus to those who trust Him. Power flows out from Jesus. Power to heal and to give hope. We see Jesus has power over demons, over disease, over death. He has power to sustain you and power to save you power to forgive you, and power to transform you. And when you lay hold of His garment by faith, when you trust in Him, that power flows out to you. Earthly fathers, we certainly love our sons and daughters, don't we? And earthly mothers, you all love your sons and daughters as well. And each of those loves, as I said, is unique. Each of those loves is wonderful. But those loves are not as powerful as we might wish. And so every earthly love, I mean, even the greatest marital love you can think of or the greatest parental love we can muster, that love is still nothing more than a faint shadow of the heavenly love God the Father has for us as His children. It's just a faint shadow of the love God the Son has for us as His bride. And that's our salvation. That's our hope 
That's our joy. Let's pray together. Father, we do thank You for the love that You show us in adopting us and making us Your children. We thank You for the love Jesus has shown us in reclaiming us as His bride, laying down His life for us to rescue us and deliver us, slaying the dragon, the serpent of old, Satan, on our behalf to free us and save us. And Father, we thank You for the love we have in our families as well, the love that fathers and mothers have for sons and daughters, the love that husbands and wives have for one another. Uh, Father, we see that glorious design for the family in Your Scripture. And Father, we want to live out that glorious design. But even as we do so, help us to remember that Jesus is the Savior. That the family can't fix itself. The family can't save itself. Nature is restored by grace. Father, help us to remember this and to trust in Jesus alone. To know His peace. To know His salvation. To know His joy. This we pray in His name. Amen.